Hello and welcome to the Reformational Anglican podcast, the the podcast that explores the riches of Reformational Anglicanism for the good of the church today. Uh, I'm your your host, Sam Pilo, and uh, my co-host, Ryan Scott, is here with me as well. Um, We're going to be looking at the doctrine of the Trinity today. Uh, So to begin with, we're going to play a little game. Uh, We're going to play uh, Name That Heresy. Uh, So Ryan, I'm going to read a description of... uh, a Trinitarian heresy. I want you to give me the uh, the name it's commonly known by. Uh, sound good? Cool. Sounds good. Okay. So what is the name of the heresy where the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are treated as three three separate deities? Oh, that'd be tritheism. Correct. Well done. So that's one point to Ryan. Uh, so tritheism treats the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as three uh, separate, independent divine beings. Uh, okay, so question two, Ryan. Name the heresy where the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are treated simply as um, different modes of God's self-revelation, different masks or personas that he adopts. Would that be modalism or Sibelianism? That is correct. That's modalism, Patrick. Uh, and finally, Ryan, um, what is the name of the, the Trinitarian slash Christological heresy where Christ is treated as uh, not God, not eternal, but simply a the, the first and greatest of God's creatures? Mm, would that be Arianism? Three for three. Well done. That's correct. I think this will get a lot harder when we get into the Christological heresies. I would say so. Uh, they're a lot more, a lot more uh, nitpicky, not nitpicky, nuanced. Yeah. Cool. So we are talking today about Anglicanism and the Trinity. And it's sometimes said that uh, if you were to remove the doctrine of the Trinity from the church, uh, then, you know, common criticism is made that the vast majority of the church's activity Uh, worship, evangelism, uh, and prayer life uh, would remain unchanged. Uh, But I think that uh, whatever uh, weight that criticism has, and um, it's hard to know really how much weight uh, it does have, I think you can't really level that criticism at uh, historic Anglicanism, uh, because clearly the Trinity is very, very prominent in historic Ang- Anglicanism. So how do we see uh, the Trinity as a prominent doctrine uh, within our tradition, Sam? Uh, well, obviously we're going to be looking through the 39 articles, and um, the Trinity is actually the first article in in the Articles of Religion. Uh, let me read out Article 1 here. Uh, so it's titled, Of Faith in the Holy Trinity. It says, There is but one living and true God, everlasting without body parts or passions of infinite power wisdom and goodness the maker and preserver of all things both visible and invisible and in unity of this godhead there be three persons of one substance power and eternity the father the son and the holy ghost uh, so right at the beginning of the the articles the um the doctrinal standard of of reformational anglicanism um first thing cranmer gets out there is we believe in in the Trinity. Yeah, and I guess the Westminster Confession would start with uh, the doctrine of Scripture, and the argument in favour of that would be, well, 
Uh, all of our theological inquiry has to start with scriptures or foundation. Um, but the third and end articles start with the Trinity because uh, actually it's God who is the proper focus of our study and our theological inquiry. So uh, you can make arguments for both, but I think um, I think to me, for my money, it makes most sense to start with God uh, if he is the proper sort of focus of our study. And then I guess like a massive thing is throughout the whole, um, you know, Book of Common Prayer worship, uh, the continual ring of the prayer book is glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. So the continual um, ring, the continual end, which we are understanding the whole sort of context for praise is towards the glory of God as he's revealed himself in Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So we read a psalm, uh, or whatever it is, or we pray or sing the psalm. And uh, Fred Saunders says um, that in the glory, then, we are seeking the face of God behind the works of God. So God's God's works are revealed in the Bible, and then uh, we give recognition to that in the gloria. Uh, Other things as well, where I think we see the prominence of um, the Holy Trinity with an Anglicanism, just... Uh, the respect that's given to the creeds, the Apostles' Creeds, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed. Um, although I've yet to see a service where we actually say the full Athanasian Creed. I think that'd be interesting. Um, and in a lot of the prayers or the homilies, um, there's some reference to the Lord Jesus. And then it says, who lives and reigns with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. So again, the, the, the triune God is the proper focus of our attention and our worship and our prayer and our preaching. Uh, and then the liturgical calendar. So we have Christmas, Pentecost, uh, and Trinity Sunday. And we remember at Christmas, of course, the incarnation. At Pentecost, we remember the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Um, both of those events um, were events that actually revealed the eternal relations that are within God. They revealed God as Son and God as Spirit. Um, and then it all comes together uh, in Trinity Sunday. So uh, the Trinity is is right there, um, really throughout Anglicanism. It's extremely prominent. Um, now, having said that, uh, the Trinity remains a mystery, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. The The Trinity is, is central to the gospel. It's central to what we believe as Anglicans, to what we believe as Christians. Uh, but it, it, is, it is a mystery. It's a revealed mystery. Um, but it's it's not something we can wrap our heads around in totality. Uh, one of our lecturers uses a great analogy. Um, he says we we tend to look for what he calls mouse trap simplicity. Uh, so if you have a mouse trap, you can you can probably take it apart and put it back together. You could uh, just by looking at it, watching it work, you could explain how every single part uh, holds together and functions. Uh, we don't get that level of um, exhaustive understanding with uh, with the doctrine of the trinity um nor should we nor should we expect to uh there's there's a a, a bad impulse that we have towards reductionism towards trying to uh, we want a god that we can understand uh, but actually that that reductionism really is uh, leads to idolatry you know so if your if your conception of god is, is something that you can wrap your your finite mind around uh, fully and completely that's that's a real red flag that what what you're thinking of is not god it's a it's god with the um 
the edges cut off so you can fit them into your box. Uh, it's God that you've um, you've shrunk down to fit into your your understanding, uh, whereas actually um, the eternal, true, living God is much greater than we can uh, comprehend, uh, and that's true especially of uh, that inner life of God in the Trinity. Um, but as you say, we we understand um, we understand what we understand of the Trinity because um, because of revelation, because of the uh, the missions, the Father sending the Son, the Father and Son are outpouring the Spirit. Um, so we do we understand uh, something of the Trinity because it's it's a revealed mystery. Yeah. So let's think about why we should bother spending time thinking about the Trinity. And um, there's a couple of layers that we can answer this on. So first of all, the Trinity is who God is. Um, it makes no sense. Uh, again, Fred. Saunders says it makes no sense to ask uh, what the point of the Trinity is or what purpose the Trinity serves. Uh, The Trinity isn't for anything beyond itself because the Trinity is God. Um, And so that's, I guess, the important first step uh, is in just understanding that if we want to know who God is, then we have to know uh, that he is the triune God. Uh, But even beyond that, there are several things that we can't really understand unless we've thought a little bit about God as Trinity. Uh, so we can't understand the, that this idea that God is love. He says in the Bible that he is love, uh, which really would make no sense uh, if God is just a monad, uh, if God uh, is a modalistic deity, um, then it would make no sense to say that he's love because love uh, by its very nature uh, gives to the other, uh, expresses its desire uh, to love and serve and be there for the other. And so before the foundation of the world, uh, what was God doing? Uh, we might think that that's really a silly question that we could never answer. But actually the Bible tells us, Jesus tells us what uh, God was doing before he created anything, uh, when there was just God, when nothing else existed, uh, only God, what was he doing? Uh, Jesus says that you, the Father, loved him, Jesus, before the foundation of the world. So before the foundation of the world, there is this love that is being shared or expressed between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit uh, in this uh, in this triune shape where one is loving and glorifying the other and the other is loving and glorifying uh, the other two and so on and so forth. And that's really the way it's been for all of eternity. And then the creation of the world, why did God create the world? Was it because he needed something uh, in order to express his glory? No. Uh, God created the world out of the overflow of that love uh, that already existed within him because the nature of love is to share it with the other and invite in uh, others into that uh, experience of love. So it's not a sort of selfish love that can sometimes exist between uh, a couple. Uh, rather, it's it's a true Uh, unselfish love that exists between the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And then the whole sort of purpose of our salvation, the whole uh, goal to which we are uh, working towards is to be adopted into the family of God uh, where now the eternal Father of the Son becomes our Father. Uh, We are in the Son. We are in Jesus. He is now our brother, uh, our elder brother, and we share in the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's been poured into our hearts. And so we are invited up and in, further up and further in, 
to the life of God and himself, uh, both that loving, glorious community that was being shared between the persons of the Trinity. That is something that amazingly, astonishingly, we are invited in uh, to participate in and to share in. And that's the whole sort of purpose and goal of our salvation. That's what we're working uh, towards, which is just amazing. Amen. That's right. And that, that is, that's really why the Trinity is so central. Um, so you might expect as, uh, as the articles are being written, you know, these are um, the heady days of the Reformation. Maybe you'd expect Cranmer to open with uh, an article on justification or an article on uh, the freedom of the English church from, uh, from the Bishop of Rome. But he, he doesn't. He opens with that, uh, that most central thing um, with God himself. Um, as you say, part of what part of what Cranmer's doing then is saying we are we are Christians. We're standing within the bounds of uh, of the creeds and most importantly of Scripture. Uh, we we affirm the the God who is three three in one. We have to get the Trinity right in order to get uh, the gospel right. Um, we have to get the Trinity right to understand um, every other aspect of Christian thought. Let me. Uh, I've spent the last couple of days reading. Um, Embracing the Trinity by Fred Sanders. Let me read just a, a quote from his uh, from his book. He says, Trinitarianism is the encompassing framework within which all Christian thought takes place and within which Christian confession finds its grounding presuppositions. It is the deep grammar of all the central Christian affirmations. Therefore, when the theologians of the patristic age finally st- stated it explicitly as an article of faith, uh, they were not simply adding an item to the list of beliefs, but performing an act of intellectual foregrounding, bringing a, a background element to the, from the periphery to the centre of Christian attention. Uh, the the Trinity is um, intrinsic in in all Christian thought. It's not always explicit, but it's always present. Uh, we might think of the, the Trinity as uh, just another head of Christian doctrine. Uh, if we were drawing up a, a syllabus for a Sunday school, uh, we might say, well, we want, by the end of Sunday school, we want the kids to know about uh, about Jesus and, and Christmas and the cross and the resurrection. We want them to know, you know, the feeding of the 5,000. We'll probably cover uh, creation. We'll cover Noah and the ark. We'll cover Daniel and the lion's den. And, and we should probably cover something about the Trinity. Um, but in fact, uh, the Trinity is is the, uh, the background, the framework for the whole, um, the whole of the gospel, uh, and so whenever the uh, people talk about, you know, the word Trinity isn't in the Bible; it was just made up later. Um, that's a little bit like the old joke. Uh, you know, people joke about um, life must have been really hard before Isaac Newton invented gravity, because you'd just be floating about, trying not to, you know, float off into space. Um, obviously, that's that's ridiculous. Uh, likewise, the uh, the, tr- the early church fathers didn't uh, invent the Trinity. They simply looked at at, um, at what they had in the New Testament, what they had in the Incarnation, uh, the the eternal Son of God who reconciles us to His Father and pours out our, His Spirit into our hearts. So well, we've got we've got God, we've got the Son of God revealing the Father and sending their their Spirit, who's also God, who's also divine and eternal. Um, and really, just uh, collating all that data, forming it into um, into a tight technical definition, um, so they could clarify what it was that they believed and what it was that they definitely didn't believe. Um, but really, we can't speak about um, 
we can't even say John 3.16 without thinking of, of the Trinity. That there's a father who loves the world and sends his son. Um, and if you look around that, that whole discussion uh, with Nicodemus where, where John 3.16 falls, uh, you even got the spirit who has to come and um, uh, who blows as, as, he, as he wills because he's, he's God, he's sovereign, uh, and who is necessary to, to give that supernatural life to, um, to fallen sinful humans. Um, the Trinity is is all throughout the New Testament. Uh, it's the background of of the gospel. So even if we're not always explicitly talking about the gospel, about the Trinity, uh, when we think of the gospel, when we think of of Christian things, uh, the Trinity is always uh, always present, always there. Okay, so let's think uh, a little bit more about uh, what the doctrine is. Um, so uh, the Trinity, God is a triunity. Uh, he's three and one. Um, and God is one. Uh, so Sam already read this first earlier on in Article One. Uh, the first part of the article expresses that we believe in a living, one living and true God uh, who is eternal. He's immaterial. He's simple. He's impassable. And he's of infinite power, wisdom and goodness. Uh, God is one and there is only one God. And that one God is one simple divine essence. Uh, so that's God is one. What about God is three then? And sometimes we use the language of persons to describe this. We say there's one God, three persons. Um, and that language can be quite helpful, but um, it can also be a little bit unhelpful because we can sometimes think of three persons as like uh, three separate spheres of consciousness, uh, which is not what's going on. Uh, in the doctrine of the Trinity. Rather, we're thinking about three persons as three sort of personal relations that exist within God. So uh, think about this a little bit. What This is what gets down to what we call eternal generation and eternal uh, procession, the eternal generation of the Son, the eternal uh, spiration or the eternal procession of the Spirit. So the Father uh, has always been the Father and the Son has always been the Son. And the Father himself is unoriginated, but the Son is eternally begotten or generated from the Father. The Son is the Word spoken out from the Father. The Son is the light of the radiance of the Father's glory. Uh, Jesus says that as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. So there's this, clearly there's this relationship of ofness or fromness from the Father to the Son. Calvin writes that the Father is the first in order, uh, the principle and fountain of the Godhead. And this is exactly why it's appropriate uh, that it was the Son, the second person of the Trinity, who was sent by the Father and becomes incarnate and takes on flesh and dwells among us. Uh, it's always the Father who sends and it's always the Son who is the one who is sent. Um, and this um, thing that happens within history then reveals actually something that is an eternal relation within God. Uh, and then secondly, um, the spirit is the breath of God. So as the word is spoken up by the father, so the spirit is breathed out uh, by the father and the spirit eternally proceeds from the father and the son, as we say in the Western Nicene Creed. So that's uh, the relations that happen within God, eternal uh, generation, eternal 
spiration or procession. I think they're not things that are often understood uh, by a lot of people, but they're actually quite important because they um, they literally describe uh, what it means for the Father to be the Father and the Son to be the Son and the Spirit to be the Spirit. That's right. Um, as you say, the uh, the missions uh, that we see in the in the gospel show us something of what God is like. So in the gospel, God doesn't just um, doesn't just save us; he re- he reveals what he's like. Uh, so the Father sends the Son because the Son is eternally from the Father. Um, the Father and the Son pour out the Spirit because the the Spirit is eternally breathed out by the Father and the Son. Um, so the structure of the of the gospel mirrors the structure of those uh, internal relations. Um, I guess we'd want to we want to be careful to say that the the relations um, that generation and inspiration uh, they tell us about how the the persons of the Trinity interact, how they relate, um, but they don't suggest that the uh, there was a time when the Son didn't exist or the Spirit didn't exist. There wasn't a time before uh, the Father generated the Son. Um, he he has always been the father. He's always always related to the father to the son as a father, uh, and vice versa. Yeah, we're thinking about it's that it gets back to that language of Calvin's language of fountain of the Godhead. So you know, it's an eternal fountain that is flowing from the Father uh, to the Son to the Spirit. And also, it's important to say um, sometimes the Church, um, certain figures of the Church were confused about this, but um, it's not the deity of the son uh, that he receives from the father it's it's the relation of personhood uh, that is received from the father so um you know the second person of the trinity is the i am that i am uh statement that was revealed to moses in exodus 3 um he is um he has full aseity of himself his full deity of himself um so as Robert Latham said, um, all three persons are the one God, and the one three persons, the three persons are the one God. So they don't. Uh, Jesus doesn't get. Uh, I guess Jesus doesn't get a hand-me-down deity. Is one way we could um, think of it. Okay, so uh, we'll maybe uh, wrap things up here for now. We'll keep it. Um, uh, we'll try and keep this one not too long. Um, this is the first of two episodes that we want to do on the doctrine of God. Um, so we've actually started this week with the second part of um, the first article. And we've thought about God as Trinity. Uh, so we've thought about the second part of the article where it says, In the unity of this Godhead, there uh, are three persons of one substance, power and eternity, the Father, the Son and the Holy Ghost. Uh, but actually, on the next episode that we do on this article, we're actually going to be thinking more about that first part. Uh, we're going to be thinking, what does it mean for God to be everlasting without body, parts, or passions? And so we're going to be looking at what's sometimes known as classical Christian theism. Um, and sometimes this is something that's debated amongst evangelicals. Uh, but clearly, as Anglicans, we believe in classical Christian theism. It's right there in doctrine. Uh, it's right there in Article 1 of the third nine articles. So maybe draw together uh, for now. And uh, yeah, it's great stuff to meditate on. Great. Why don't I close with the, uh, the collect for Trinity Sunday? Let's pray together. Almighty and everlasting God, who has given unto us thy servants grace 
by the confession of a true faith to acknowledge the glory of the eternal trinity and in the power of the divine majesty to worship the unity. We beseech thee that thou wouldst keep us steadfast in this faith and evermore defend us from all adversities. Who livest and reignest one God, world without end. Amen. Thank you.